Welcome to this podcast from ASHA, the American Sexual Health Association. I'm Fred Wyant, ASHA's Director of Communications. Since I began working at ASHA nearly 18 years ago, the array of testing options available for sexually transmitted infections, or STIs, has increased both in number of tests available and their sophistication, but there's a lot of confusion around who should have which test and when exactly they might need to be tested. So, for a closer look at STI tests, today we're chatting with Dr. J. Dennis Fordenberry, a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Fordenberry, who is also the chair of ASHA's Board of Directors, which means he's my boss, specializes in both adolescent medicine and internal medicine. Dr. Fordenberry, welcome and thank you. It's good to have you today. Hi, Fred. Glad to be here. All right. So, it seems to me that we should consider this to be the golden age of STI testing. We have very sophisticated DNA tests that let us detect chlamydia and gonorrhea with a simple urine sample, type-specific herpes blood tests with DNA tests emerging for symptomatic patients, rapid HIV tests, HPV DNA tests, as part of cervical cancer screening for women, and on and on. We've got the goods. Given the high prevalence of STIs, though, it seems like we still struggle with testing. People don't always get the tests they might need. Um, so talk a bit, if you would, about barriers to increase STI testing. I mean, what, what should we do to engage patients? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do. One is to help people understand what their options are and how many things are available. I think the second is understanding, helping patients understand whether or not they're at risk, whether a particular kind of test might be helpful to them to understand their own risk and to understand their partner's risk. And then the third is understanding what happens when a provider gives them a STI test and understanding that there's no single test for all of the STIs in the world. And so they need to understand that there are specific tests for specific infections and sometimes they may need a different test for a particular infection that they might be worried about. Okay. And let's flip that just for a second and talk about the other side. Uh, you mentioned providers. Well, what about providers? What, how do we need to engage providers to, to increase testing uptake? Well, part of that, I think, really does focus on educating providers to make sure they understand how much we've developed in terms of our capacity for highly accurate and relatively inexpensive tests for a variety of sexually transmitted infections. And then I think we also have to work with providers to help them understand that this is a service that, that patients expect and that the patients would appreciate being offered this, these kinds of tests, especially if the providers are willing to help educate them on why they're important and what can be done if an infection is identified. And do you think, is that part of the problem that maybe providers are worried that a positive test may trigger a lot of lengthy and maybe emotional counseling? Is, 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 that, is that an issue? I think it is for some providers and for some kinds of things it, it clearly does. It, a positive yeah. STI test has a lot of implications for people, for their concerns for their own health, for the implications that it might have for 
relationships that they have. So it is often the case that people with positive tests need a little support to process the information and decide what to do next. And just as a quick plug for ASHA, we have a number of resources for both providers and patients just to address that. We have uh, for example, provider counseling videos and a cheat sheet to, uh, to help them um, uh, have conversations with patients after a positive diagnosis, and we have things for patients as well. Okay. So let me ask this. People will, will come to us not infrequently, and they'll just want to know, where should I go to get an STI test? You know, Is that the health department, their regular doctor's office, uh, or does it really depend on the test they're seeking? about a couple of specific populations. First, adolescents. Um, last year, you and I had a chat, and you mentioned that sexual health conversations between healthcare providers and adolescent patients don't occur often enough, and when they do happen at all, they tend to be very, very brief. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why is that? What short circuits these talks? A lot of times when you look at the reasons that, that clinicians don't have those talks with young people, their, their first reason is that they uh, are afraid that their patients or their parents will reject the, the topic and think it's not appropriate for that kind of interaction between a physician and a patient. Many physicians say that they don't feel confident in their skills of having those conversations and don't feel confident in their ability to respond to issues that might come up. Mm -hmm. And so that, that reluctance, that issue of the stigma associated with discussions of sexuality and some discomfort and lack of training often suppresses a conversation that should be happening fairly routinely. Let me ask you, too, about uh, pregnant women. Uh, specifically, CDC recommends a, a number of tests um, that are routine for pregnant women, but two things really stand out that they don't recommend for routinely. Um, herpes simplex virus, HSV2, and trichomoniasis. Um, would you talk a little bit about when should pregnant women perhaps be tested for trich and uh, HSV2? evidence 
pregnancy in women that otherwise don't have an indication for them simply isn't strong enough based on the interventions that we can do and the interventions that can be tested. So it's not that, that some pregnant women don't need those tests. In fact, some do, many do. But on a routine basis, the evidence that doing the tests and then intervening makes it, there's no evidence that that make, makes a difference in pregnancy outcomes at a, at a population level. And is it also true that sometimes um, a well-intentioned test or intervention might actually do harm? Um, a lot of times tests uh, create a lot of issues because the, the test itself has implications for the person's behavior, the, the behavior of their partner. For pregnant women, it can create a lot of anxiety about the health of the of the pregnancy and the, and the infant. And so I think we all have to be respectful that when we create information, we have to be uh, careful with how it's used and, and what the benefits of the, of the information are. Well said, and that clarifies uh, what I was getting at. There's not that the test itself is harmful, it's just that the implications and the reaction to some of the follow-up to it could be, and the harm could be just in the case of, like you said, maybe maybe uh, uh, increased needless anxiety. That's correct. All right. Dr. J. Dennis Fortenberry, thank you. Indiana University School of Medicine, Asher Board of Directors, we appreciate your time today, and I'm sure we'll be talking with you again very soon. Nice to talk to you, Fred. So thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. We're online at ashessexualhealth.org. And, of course, follow us on Twitter and be our friend on Facebook. You can also sign up on the website to receive Ash's update emails where, where we let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health, including new resources as we roll them out. Until next time, this is Fred Wine for ASHA. So long, everybody.